Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we shall be looking at the Scorpion King 4, Quest for Power. This is a film which I will admit I have been dreading ever since my episode on the Scorpion King 3, the only film I have given a 1 out of 10 since doing this podcast. Considering that the Scorpion King 3 involved ninjas, elephants, one of the first film appearances of Batista, and a weirdly Napoleonic villain in 3000 BC, this score is almost surprisingly impressive, but it did not exactly make me hyped for this next instalment. Will this one be any better? Well, I guess we shall find out. One thing I can say, however, is that at least these films are never boring. In terms of the layout of the episode, we shall start with a little background information, then the section on the historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film and rate it out of 10. But before that, let me set the scene. Right. When you were younger, you entered the Minotaur's lair and travelled to the underworld. You then grew up and became a king married to a powerful sorceress. That sorceress then died and in your grief, you allowed your kingdom to tear itself apart. You then battled for redemption and ended up becoming the ruler of Japan for some reason. Now, you are just a mercenary again, though I'm not sure why as I guess the writers couldn't be bothered to explain this. In this fourth instalment, you and your partner go in search of an urn that leads the way to a magical crown. However, your partner betrays you and manages to take the urn for themselves. You are now in a race to find the fabled crown. You must stop him before he uses it for evil. You must go on 
the quest for power. Okay, let us begin by looking at some of the background information to the film. To begin with, Ellen Holman, who plays one of the main characters, Melina, performed most of her own stunts. According to many of her colleagues, she also helped make the film incredibly fun and remained a positive influence on set. In my opinion, I think the fun atmosphere is really obvious as all of the characters seem to be enjoying themselves. I do not want to go too far into my opinions on the film at this stage, but the actor's enjoyment was a positive here, and it did elevate the film. Although this film holds some surprisingly big stars, such as Barry Boslow, Rodger Hauer, Will Kemp, and Michael Bean, it is noticeable that many of these stars do not have very big parts. For instance... Despite being the central figure on the film's poster, Lou Ferrino only appeared in the film in two scenes, and the second of these scenes was less than a second long. Though admittedly, the first of these was a relatively long and surprisingly fun fight scene. For those who are uncertain who Lou Ferrino is, he is a retired bodybuilder and actor. For me, I best know him from the 1970s Incredible Hulk series. However, he also appeared in the 1980s Hercules series, which was a huge inspiration for this very film. This is also the third Scorpion King film to star a WWE wrestler. The first starred Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the third starred Batista, and this one stars Eva Torres in her debut film. Also, with this film, Victor Webster becomes the only ever person to play the Scorpion King on two separate occasions. We have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So here, I'm just going to go through the film, talking about what is accurate and what is not. I shall also elaborate on some parts that I find particularly interesting using the film as a kind of jumping-off point of sorts. First things first, for those who have not listened to earlier episodes on the Scorpion King series, it is worth noting that the character of the Scorpion King is based on a real individual. The real one was called King Scorpion, and he likely ruled over southern Egypt in somewhere between 3200 to 3000 BC. He was also likely the direct predecessor of Nama, the man who likely unified Egypt under one ruler. I will also say that I will not be covering every detail. This is firstly because there is a lot to cover here, and we would be here all day. And secondly, because I have covered a lot of these themes in previous episodes on the Scorpion King series. For instance, I will not talk too much about how in the first two minutes of this film, 
we'd see people dressed in Roman uniforms in 3000 BC Egypt, or that they have very nice shiny swords. I will, however, discuss a little about the camel that the Scorpion King is riding here. It is fair to say that in 3000 BC, there were some camels in Egypt, though they were not ridden or domesticated in any way. And they would not be domesticated for another 2,500 years, give or take, when the Persians were ruling over Egypt. This means that all of those drawings and paintings you have seen of ancient Egypt, where camels are shown helping with the construction of the Great Pyramid, are all completely wrong. Also, the camel in this film has two humps where typically the type of camel found in Egypt has only one hump. Basically, having a two-humped and domesticated camel in 3000 BC Egypt is about as accurate as having a long-haired Gandhi wandering around medieval Europe whilst playing an electric guitar. Though weirdly, that probably wouldn't be the least accurate thing in this film either. Speaking about wrong eras, pretty much all of the clothing and music in this film are completely incorrect in every conceivable way. For a start, outside of the obvious heavy metal and rock music, which is not even worth talking about here, all of the music has a typical medieval twang to it. As for the clothing, well, let us focus on the crowns. The crowns here are pointed, looking like a battlement at the top of a medieval castle. Once again, they look incredibly medieval, and the closest thing I can think of from the ancient world that would resemble these in any way whatsoever would have been the crowns from the Persian Empire. For reference, I would look at the crown of Darius the Great. Near the beginning of the film, the Scorpion King and his partner, Drazen, break into a castle in search of an artefact named the Urn of Kings. It is fair to say that in ancient Egypt, cremation was not really practiced, and so they did not have urns. The closest thing in appearance to an urn from ancient Egypt would be a canopic jar designed to hold the internal organs of a mummified individual. However, these were not technically urns as they did not hold cremated remains. It is fair to say, however, that the urn here is covered in Sanskrit writing. Sanskrit originally emerged in Mesopotamia, which today would mostly be located in Iraq and in general Western Asia. However, once again, in such areas as this, cremation was also not practiced. Although Mesopotamia was a large area and beliefs naturally varied, typically the afterlife was believed to be beneath the ground, whilst the realm of the gods was in the sky. During the burning of the body, it was believed that the smoke and embers rising into the sky were the spirit of the dead going up to the realm of the gods, rather than going down into the afterlife where human souls were supposed to go. At one point in the film, we see the Scorpion King use coins to buy a drink. I have discussed coins a little in my episode on the Scorpion King too, so I shall not go into this in too great a detail. However, essentially, the Persian ruler Darius took credit for bringing coinage to Egypt. This would have been roughly in about 550 BC. Though technically, the real answer is a lot more complex than that. Basically, 
although this point is up for debate, it does seem likely that there were some coins in Egypt before the reign of Darius, but they were not used commonly until the Ptolemaic period, which began in around about 305 BC. When it comes to the economy in Egypt during the time of King Scorpion, so from around about 3200 to 3000 BC-ish, we know very little. However, there are some interesting trends that can be observed in grave goods. King Scorpion lived in a time period that was known as the Proto-Dynastic Period. Basically, you had the Pre-Dynastic Period, which was a time before Egypt was unified. Then you had the Proto-Dynastic Period, which was where the development of the Egyptian state began, and you had the first rulers who ruled over large parts of the country. And then came the Dynastic Period, where Egypt was unified under one singular ruler. Interestingly, at the cemetery of El Amra, during the pre-dynastic period, there is evidence of grave goods from both the north and south of Egypt, as well as Palestine. They are presented in a high frequency of the pre-dynastic graves, showing that there was a fair amount of trade going on between these areas, and that the products were readily available. However, when the proto-dynastic period comes about, this trend changes, and there seems to have been a more restrictive and centralised form of trade. Now we see foreign goods appearing mainly in the graves of rulers and elite individuals only. During this time, it is also noticeable that there does seem to be a bigger socio-economic divide in Egypt. It is worth noting, however, that there were also newer, more local forms of pottery appearing at this time, and a general increase in local products. And in fact, at Hierakonopolis, there is even evidence of a pottery workshop from the late pre-dynastic period. Therefore, it may not just be that the ruling classes were restricting access to foreign goods, it may have also just been that such goods were not as needed anymore, as the Egyptians were able to make their own products on a larger scale locally. However, when it comes to evidence such as this, it is important to remember that we are talking about prehistory here, which basically means we're talking about a time before written records. Also, we are focusing on cemeteries, which are famously susceptible to tomb robbery. Therefore, although we can look at trends, it needs to be remembered that by its nature, the evidence here is incredibly tainted. Basically put, pre-dynastic Egypt, although fascinating, is an incredibly hard area to study. Also, when it comes to subjects like this, it is very easy to see what you want to see and to build your own political bias into the picture. For instance, if you're of a more kind of left-wing socialist kind of mindset, you might see the emergence of the ruling class as restrictive and pushing down those beneath them. Meanwhile, someone who has more right-wing beliefs may point towards the beginning of mass production as a sign that even the working class were getting more luxuries. As always, the truth is likely somewhere in the middle of this. But to throw an extra ingredient into the mix, it also needs to be remembered that this is not a modern civilization. Although there are always going to be some similarities, there were different standards of living and beliefs and so we cannot rely too heavily on modern standards and ethics. So, 
Studying pre-dynastic Egypt, especially when it comes to the economy, is incredibly tricky, though admittedly it is also very interesting. Anyway, let's return to the film. At one point, Drazen says that he and the Scorpion King are going to have a nice cup of tea. There was no tea in ancient Egypt, especially at this time, and in fact tea was invented in China some 200 years after the death of the Scorpion King. During one scene, we see a man writing with a quill. Quills were invented in Europe during the 6th century AD, so well over 500 years after the fall of Aaronic Egypt. Towards the middle of the film, we see a windmill. These were invented somewhere between 700 and 900 AD, so they're just a few thousand years out here. However, windmills were commonly used for grinding grain. Grain was actually the staple of the Egyptian diet, as their main food was bread and their main drink was beer, both of which are made from grain. The two most common types of grain in Egypt were barley and emma wheat, as both of these flourished easily in the warm climate. In terms of their production, when ripe, the tops of these grains were harvested and then spread out on a community threshing floor. Cattle such as cow, goats and donkeys would then trample over these grain heads, splitting them open and allowing the stalks to be removed. The grain was then winnowed, so essentially thrown in the air. This allowed the lighter chaff and the pests to be blown away in the wind, whilst the heavier grain fell back down. The grain was then stored. The next stage of production involved small amounts of this grain being taken out and placed on a quern in order to mill the grain. Basically, a quern in ancient Egypt consisted of a curved piece of stone. Another stone, that looked very similar to a modern-day rolling pin, was then used to roll the grain, grinding it down into flour. During the time of the Scorpion King, this stage seems to have been performed by women. However, as time went on, it grew into a larger industry. Now, huge cylindrical pestles, which according to depictions were operated by men, began to be used instead. Either way, the resulting flour was then mixed with water to make dough, which could then be shaped and baked to make bread. Moving on, the man who owns this windmill also has a catapult. The catapult was not invented until 400 BC and was actually a Greek invention, not an Egyptian one, though it is fair to say that this man named Sorel also has the early blueprints for a car and uses magnets to make objects levitate, so it's fair to say they are not exactly going with historical accuracy here. Finally, at several points in the film, we see stained glass windows. These were not invented until the 7th century AD, and in fact, during ancient Egypt, windows themselves hadn't even been invented yet, so it's a bit of a stretch to give them stained glass ones. Overall, therefore, Unsurprisingly, the Scorpion King 4 is not exactly a shining example of historical accuracy. The Scorpion King series in general is easily the least accurate of any of the films I have reviewed, and this one is no exception. Though in the series' defence, it has never portrayed itself as historically accurate, 
and therefore at least I do not feel it can be accused of spreading misinformation. So to sum up, for historical accuracy, I would give this film a 0.01 out of 10, as I would for the series as a whole for that matter. Though judging this film on historical accuracy is basically a false errand and misses the entire point of the film. Which is why, for the most part, I've tried to use it more as a jumping off point to talk about the ancient Egyptian culture in general. The actual point of this film is to be a bit of dumb fun. Does it achieve that, however? Listen on to find out. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So here I'm just going to talk about the parts that I liked, the parts that I disliked, and then rate the film out of 10 as well. To begin with, I will say that surprisingly, there were a few moments in this film that genuinely made me laugh, and actually for their intended purpose. For instance, at the beginning of the film, the Scorpion King, who is called Matthias in the series, and his at-the-time partner, soon-to-be enemy, Drazen, are making their way towards the treasury in a castle. They stumble upon a hall full of swinging axes. At first, there is just a line of these axes, which they are easily able to dodge. However, just as they think they are safe, a whole heap of different blades and strange chainsaw-like contraptions start swinging from the wall to a ridiculous level. I will admit this audibly made me laugh and it did kind of hint at the kind of film I was getting myself in for. In general, in fact, the whole opening sequence of this film is a lot of fun. Not only do we see these traps, but we also have our hero fighting off a whole heap of generic soldiers leading up to a battle with the king played by none other than Luferino. The whole sequence really feels like something from a video game with the gradual progression up to the final boss. Further, although Luferino only has a small part here, I actually really liked the way he was used as his role was a lot of fun and very entertaining. In general, when it comes to the fight scenes in this film, they do a surprisingly good job of making them all feel different. For instance, at one point, King Zakor sends the Scorpion King to make peace with the Kingdom of Nothania. As he is there on a peace mission, when Matthias is attacked by the guards, he basically takes a passive approach to fighting, simply moving out of the way of the attacks. Meanwhile, the guards are charging at him, going headfirst into pillars, or diving at him and putting themselves through tables. All of this comes to a climax when one of the guards climbs up to the second floor of the tavern and dives off of the balcony as if it were the top rope in a wrestling match. Matthias casually walks out of the way, sipping on some ale as the guard smashes through a table. In another fight, Matthias gets catapulted multiple times at a dragon, but keeps missing and slamming into the side of a cliff face. If you want more context to that, well, I guess you're just going to have to watch the film. Then there is a medieval-style kind of UFC fight between Valina and the WWE wrestler Eva Torres. Once again, this takes a different approach and comes across as a slightly more legitimate, though still wholly ridiculous, fight. All of these are very entertaining, and as already said, 
they are different enough to keep my interest. This is a huge improvement on the last film, where the fights all felt incredibly samey. And in fact, in general, the film is a lot more fun than The Scorpion King 3, and it very much is the first film in the series to wholly embrace its campy silly side. As a result, all of the actors are clearly having fun, which is really nice to see. I also just generally liked the characters in this film, as they were very colourful and interesting. For instance, one character, Sorel, a man of science who does not believe in magic or the gods, has blueprints for all kinds of modern inventions in his house. So, as I already mentioned in the historical accuracy section, one of these is the automobile. Sorel joins Matthias on his journey as he wants to prove that magic does not exist, and as such, delights in pointing out all of the hidden trickery throughout the film. For instance, he points out that the dragon in the film is entirely mechanical. This was really fun and it gave the film a distinct, kind of steampunky feel that I quite enjoyed actually. Then in one scene, Matthias and Drazen wear special suits which allow them to fly around as they battle. Sorel points out that this is achieved by using magnets. Although the science here is admittedly a bit sceptical, well to say the least, in, in a way this just kind of makes the whole thing more fun, as ultimately it is supposed to be ridiculous. Further, whilst the film does ignore some pretty substantial chronological points from previous films, you know, like for instance, the fact that at the end of the last film he was the King of Japan, and then suddenly in this one he's just a mercenary again, there is an attempt to also link into some of the other films in, in, in some ways. For instance, Matthias does talk about getting stabbed by an arrow uh, tainted with scorpion venom, which was one of the scenes from the first film, and it's kind of supposed to be how he got the name the Scorpion King. He also talks about the pain he felt when his wife, the sorceress, died. This was how the third film began, as we basically saw his grief lead to him neglecting his kingdom and it kind of tearing itself apart. Now, of course, the film is not perfect. Unsurprisingly, there are quite a few issues. For a start, although I did chuckle at this, the northern lands in this film are called Nolfania, which may be the laziest name I have ever heard. It's literally just North Anya. Need I say more? Also, although the fight scenes are very fun, there are far too many camera cuts throughout them, which did make me feel a little bit sick at times. Finally, it feels as if the writers were making up the story as it went along. This isn't to say there wasn't an end goal here, there was. They were going after a crown, and so I didn't necessarily get lost, but a lot of what happened felt very random. In terms of the reviews for this film, they were... <laughs> not great. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has no critical consensus, but has an audience score of 21%, and on IMDb, it has 4.1 out of 10. Though it is also noticeable that the majority of the reviews here are giving it either 5 or 6 out of 10, and are generally seeing the film for what it is. A bit of goofy, light-hearted fun. Even when reading the lower-rated reviews, they generally still agree that the film is enjoyable, and also a lot of fun to laugh at. I guess for a lot of the time, it just depends on how you rate the film and what you perceive as being important. 
For myself, I tend to rate films predominantly on my own enjoyment. It is undeniable that this is not technically a good film. It is very much a B-movie in the style of the low-budget fantasy films from the 80s and early 90s. But I love those goofy films. A film like this is never going to get 10 out of 10, nor is it going to get 7, 8 or 9 out of 10 for that matter. But these kind of films aren't designed to get those scores. For myself, I would give this a 6 out of 10, but it is an incredibly fun 6 out of 10. It is probably one I will watch again in the future, maybe with some friends, and I will be looking forward to doing so. Further, considering that I gave The Scorpion King 3 1 out of 10, that means that this one is 600% better. Definitely the greatest improvement I have seen from any sequel since doing this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have, why not consider liking, subscribing, sharing on social media? More importantly, why not consider seeking this film out to see if you agree with my points? I think there is a good chance you will have a lot of fun with this one. And join me next week, where we shall be looking at episode 5 of season 5 of the television show Bones, named... Night at the Bone Museum. In this episode, a dead body is found attached to an electric fence. However, that body is not modern. It is over 3,000 years old and comes from ancient Egypt. I hope you all have a really good week and I hope to see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.